0: If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 5. We're going to be uh, reading today, starting in verse 21. If you don't have your Bible, you can find this uh, printed in the bulletin. Uh, We're continuing our our series in Mark, and we've seen uh, lots of things so far about Jesus. The past uh, two weeks, though, we've seen Jesus confronting things that people are afraid of. So last week, there was a storm on the sea, and, and aren't we afraid of natural disaster? And Jesus calmed it with a word, and then we saw a demon-possessed man, and aren't we afraid of evil spirits and evil forces? And yet Jesus commanded them to go into the pigs, and they went. Well, today, Jesus confronts the mother of all fears, the fear of death, and its close relative, the fear of disease. Uh, Jesus meets this in two different people that we're going to talk about today, Uh, Let me read to you the story, starting in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. Seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, "'My little daughter is at the point of death.' Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched And told them to give her something to eat. The word of the Lord. When was the last time you struggled to show patience? Right. Um, Most of us would probably not have to go much farther than this morning. At some point this morning. Uh, Maybe a few of us who got to reach back into ancient history would go to like last night. That might be the furthest back, because patience is just a regular struggle in every area of life, and actually, it all, always has been. Uh, it's not a new thing, but I, I do think in our times today, we ha- maybe have more of a struggle with it because of how instant everything is. Uh, I um, noticed something about myself a couple weeks ago, that uh, since I had bought a Keurig machine a few years ago, I've gotten used to getting coffee very fast. The Keurig machine is where you take a pod, put it in, close the thing, and three minutes or less, y'all, it comes up with a pretty good cup of coffee. Pretty good. Now, I say pretty good because there are other methods to make coffee that I think taste better, like the old-fashioned Mr. Coffee Pot, right? Or the French press, which is the best of all ways, in my opinion, (laughs) to make the coffee. But here's what I learned about myself. Even though I like it better those other two ways... Ever since I got my Keurig, even when I have time to do it the other ways, like on a Saturday morning, I still go to the Keurig. Because it's three minutes or less, and it's a pretty good cup, even though it's not a great cup. I can't even wait for coffee. (laughs) And in many different ways, our modern world does that to us, doesn't it? it? It makes us expect everything instantly. Instant results, instant fruit, instant, you know, passage through difficult things. As soon as we feel uncomfortable, we want it to be fixed right now. And yet, notice these two stories. Two people whose lives are intertwined seemingly at random, Jairus and this unnamed woman, both who are facing things that people are mortally terrified of, death and disease, And yet Jesus heals them, but only after making them wait for the healing. There's a lesson to be learned here. Faith requires patience. Faith requires patience. It's not a Keurig machine. It's a slow cooker. Faith is a slow cooker because God is a slow cooker. Doing his work in our lives patiently over time. Take a look at your bulletin, and I want to show you three things today from this story about patient faith. First of all, there's the need for patient faith. Secondly, there's our struggle with patient faith. And then there's the possibility of patient faith our need, the struggle, and the possibility. Let's look first of all at the need. I said there were two stories intertwined here. And if you look at verse 21 and 22, you'll see the first person whose story is intertwined with the other. He's a man named Jairus. Now, there's a crowd around Jesus, a very large one, by the way. The word used there means really large crowd, big thousands of people. And Jairus makes his way through that crowd to beg Jesus to heal his little daughter, 12 years old, who was at the point of death. Now, it's important to note, what kind of person is Jairus? Look at verse 22. What kind of person is he? It says he is one of the rulers of the synagogue, meaning he was a leader in the church. He was a community leader. Everybody looked up to him. People knew who he was by name, and that's why his name appears in this story. Probably that's also why he's able to make it through the crowd of thousands of people to get to Jesus quickly, because people are like, hey, move out of the way. Jairus is coming. A very important person. And yet, in this very important person's life, who was also, by the way, he was a man of faith too. We see that clearly there in verse 23, and how he begs Jesus to heal his daughter, yet even in his life, there is difficulty. Now, the second person who just happens to be there, in fact, she's not trying to make a scene. She's not able to move the crowd out of her way. She just has to sneak through the crowd and reach out and touch the edge of Jesus' robe. Now, notice there in verse 25 and 6 what is this woman's name? It's not there, Uh, she is unnamed. Uh, her suffering was not a very public suffering either. She had been suffering for 12 years with a flow of blood, with a, what was called an issue of blood, you know, where she could not stop from bleeding. It says she had uh, gone to many physicians and had suffered many things under those doctors, which, by the way, can you imagine the types of things in the first century they might have tried to do to stop her problem? I mean, this is we're talking about really early in the medical profession. And they didn't know a lot of things. And so they put her probably through the, through the ringer. And it says here that after all those 12 years, she had no money left, which shows health care was also not a new problem. <laughs> Paying for health care, that is, has always been an issue. She ran out of money, and she was not better but worse. She sneaks her way up, touches his garment, and yet Jesus won't let her go away anonymously. Now think about it, two people from the opposite ends of the spectrum, a very important ruler of the synagogue, a woman who doesn't even get named, who just wants to touch Jesus' clothes. And yet both of those people are touched with desperation, suffering, loss, and difficulty. Both of them are people of faith. And yet their faith in God does not... Make them immune to the general sufferings that fall upon every kind of person in this world. If you're going to live in this world, you are going to suffer. And actually, if you pay attention to the story, this is something that I think we all have to embrace. If you pay attention to the story, God is intending their various kinds of suffering in order to strengthen their faith, to show how strength strong it is, and to have them exercise their faith through difficulty, through having to be patient, so that their faith would come out stronger than it was in the beginning. This woman waited 12 years. Her 12 years were far too long. This girl, her 12 years were far too short. And yet in that dire situation, Jesus makes the man wait as he stops to have a conversation with a woman whose problem wasn't nearly as dire as his daughter's problem. Did you notice that? Jesus stops everything and spends time looking to find this woman, calling her out of the crowd, speaking to her, and letting her tell her story and speak to him. How much time do you think that took? I mean, it would be like an ambulance taking a guy with cardiac arrest to the hospital and stopping to help someone fix a flat tire. I think those ambulance drivers would be fired. And yet Jesus has a different way about him, doesn't he? The Lord of life has a different way about him. And stops and makes Jairus wait the whole time, so much so that by the time the conversation's over, your daughter's dead. Faith is a muscle. A muscle requires exercise to get strong, exercise only comes from resistance. Faith is a tool. A tool is only good if you keep it up. Like, For example, think about your kitchen knives. Very important, right? To have good knives in your kitchen to be able to cook. Well, you can have the best knives in the world. But if you don't clean them, if you don't store them properly, if you don't sharpen them, especially sharpen them regularly, it's not going to do you any good. You may be able to cut butter But if you've got that piece of steak that you're getting ready to put on the grill and you try to cut, I mean, you might as well take it and rip it with your hands. That's how ineffective that knife's going to be. And same way with faith. It's easy to believe in God when life is going easy. It's a lot harder to keep believing and trusting when life is not going the way you want it to, and yet God actually orders difficulty into our lives in order to strengthen and provide resistance. Let me tell you a big word here, and you've probably heard the word before, but it's an important Bible word, providence. You might want to write down the word Providence. If you look at that word after you write it down you'll see the word provide is in there right right at the very beginning provide ints and that tells you what it means it's talking about how the great God who made everything the one and only God provides preserves and governs all his creatures and all of their actions all the time God is absolutely in control of this world So that when something comes into our life that's a difficulty or a time that calls for waiting or a time that calls for pain, it did not come at random, but it passed through his fatherly hands into your life. You say, well, what about about the things that evil people do? Even that is mysteriously under his control. Now, he didn't do it because he's not evil. He didn't sin because God doesn't sin, but he allows it. He permits it for a time for a purpose. Even the devil is God's devil. Even the devil's on a leash. And at the other end of that leash is God holding the reins. He can do a lot of evil, but he can only do as much evil as God lets him do. Look at Job. The book of Job, Satan has to come to God and get permission to touch Job. You say, well, why in the world did he give him permission? Well, you go read Job. I ain't going to tell you right now. I'm not going to give a spoiler alert. You've got to go read the whole book of Job to understand the mystery of how God controls even difficult things. In order to shape the faith of his people. Jesus already told us in the parable of the sower, true faith is deep faith. True faith is enduring faith, faith that lasts, faith that has patience. Fake faith is shallow and temporary. The only way for you to know whether you've got true faith or fake or, or false faith is to endure suffering with God. Now, I realize this raises questions that are really hard to answer, and we'll talk about a couple of those in a minute. This is a hard thing. I'm not going to pretend this is an easy teaching. But I think I want us all to understand that providence is a blessed teaching because the only alternative to believing in providence is believing that either you or I or the devil or something else is in control of the world when bad things happen. That's the only other option. It's either God or something else. Which one would you rather it be? I'd rather say, man, I'm sick, and God didn't necessarily strike me with sickness, but He had permitted me to be sick. That's a whole lot better than thinking the devil did it, and God suddenly, like, looked the other way, and the devil snuck one in. (laughs) That's scarier. It's way scarier to understand that the providence, the almighty hand of a good, good father directs and. And controls our life. And one of his main purposes that he's fulfilling is to grow and strengthen our faith. That's the first thing. The need for patient faith. Now secondly, the struggle. I don't have to tell you this is a struggle, right? We all know it is. We've all experienced it. Uh, When you consider the the providence of God or or the fact that God is orchestrating events and permitting and allowing things to happen in our lives... And then you consider how much of that we're able to understand in our brains. There's a huge gap there, right? And and that's where the struggle is found, is in the gap. Uh, Jairus didn't know why Jesus stopped to deal with this woman and let the time tick, 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 tick tick away so that his daughter would die. He had no idea. And yet Jesus did it, right? Uh, The woman didn't know why God didn't answer her prayers for 12 years, She didn't know why, and yet that's what God did. There was a gap there between what God knew and understood and what she or he were capable of understanding. Same with us. Now, here's where we struggle. When we see that gap between God and us, we want with everything within us to fill in the gap. We just can't stand to have anything left unexplained, right? It's just so hard to do. It's hard for me to do. I know it's it's hard for you as well. Uh, We want to invent reasons why God would do this or that and not do this or that. And and you just can't do that. In fact, if you think about it, if we could do that, wouldn't that make us God? (laughs) If we could know what God knows without God telling us, right? Right? Wouldn't that make us on a level with God? Isn't it, doesn't it make perfect sense, actually, that we can only know as much as God will tell us? And when God doesn't tell us, there's just going to be a mysterious gap there. We cannot jump to conclusions about that gap. Don't you hate it when someone jumps to conclusions about you? Isn't that painful? That they took one thing you said or did and they created this entire story that's just not true about you? Isn't that hurtful? Well, we do it to God. We spin these tales. Now, I want to show you some examples of this. And If you look at verse 35, the first example of a group of people that are trying to spin a tale and fill in the gap between God and them are the people that come from Jairus' house to tell Jairus his daughter's dead. Look at what they say Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Okay, that's one common way of filling in the gap. Uh, Jairus, Jesus did not respond to your request within a certain timetable. Your daughter died. Therefore, why trouble him any further? If he didn't respond in that timetable, he's not going to respond, obviously, so just move on. I I call this way of filling in the gap, I call it hopeless defeat. It's when we take God's slowness or what we see as slowness to respond as a lack of willingness or desire to respond and almost every time we take it that way we have misjudged and miscalculated God just like they had I mean think about it this is it's kind of funny to think about it this way but how well did their question in verse 35 how well did it age in the story right why trouble the teacher any further How did that age when Jesus walked into the room with a little girl and took her by the hand and with two words, I mean, a few more words in English, but two words in Aramaic lifted her from death to life. I mean, why bother the teacher? That's why you bother the teacher. Because this teacher is not just any teacher. The words of this teacher don't just fill your head with ideas. The words of this teacher created the universe. And so the words of this teacher can bring life where there is death. That's why you bother the teacher. That's why you keep praying. That's why you don't try to speculate and fill in the gaps of unanswered prayers or long waiting and suffering and all those kinds of things that happen to all of us in different ways. Now, look at the second group of people. Verse 39. When Jesus gets to the house, there are people there weeping and wailing loudly, it says. And you've got to understand, this was the cultural convention of the time. Uh, When someone died, you would have everybody over to your house for days. And, you know, instead of calling the undertaker, you would call these mourners. And they would send out a dispatch of several people who would sing sad songs and cry and all kinds of things with the family for days on end. And that was a way to help the family process the grief. You had these professional people who were disattached from the situation who could help them cry and help them mourn. No matter what you think about that arrangement, that's what they did, right? When Jesus got there, he looked at them and they're making all this racket, And Jesus says, why are you making a commotion? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Jesus does not mean that he thinks she's actually asleep, literally. Actually, Jesus is saying something powerful here. He's saying, for my people, death is like taking a nap. This is something, by the way, the Bible always says. It talks about how God's children just fall asleep instead of die. This is from God's perspective, because one day on that last great day, Jesus is going to take us all by the hand, and with those same two words, we're going to wake up. And so Jesus is taking a little bit of that last day and bringing it into today for this, this little girl. And yet, notice how they respond. These professional mourners, how do they respond to his announcement? Somebody say it. Verse 40, what do they do? They laughed. Now, besides the fact that they were able to go from mourning to laughing like that, which is interesting, kind of shows maybe they're profession- they were just professional putting on a show, right? It also shows a deep skepticism. A deep... I mean, they are scorning the Christ. Mocking. And unfortunately, y'all, that's one of the other ways that we try to fill in the gap. Sometimes it's hopeless defeat. Oh, God, I guess if you're not going to give me what I want, you don't want to give me anything. If you're not going to do it in the time I want you to do it, you're not going to do anything. The other way we do it is, is there even a God? Really, she's just sleeping? I'm sorry, but I'm a professional mourner, and I've been to a lot of funerals, and they ain't just sleeping. They all stay dead. So, poppycock. (laughs) Hogwash. That's kind of what they're doing. They're just completely just dismissing a solemn announcement from the Son of God. And y'all, look at what happens in the story. When we persist in scornful skepticism, Jesus is going to put us out of the room. And we're not going to get to see the glory of his miraculous work. That's what he does. He put them out of the room because they, they have no business in there because they don't have any openness at all. To the work of God. After all, they were professional mourners. Today we may say, well, well, we're scientists. We're doctors. We know better. Dead people don't rise. We're modern people. Jesus says, I'm going to put you out of the room. If you will not bow your knee and recognize that God is able. And one day we know, Jesus will put people out of the room, literally, at the final judgment. You'll be out of the room forever and never seeing the pleasures that are at his right hand forevermore unless you're willing to drop that absolutely unreasonable, senseless skepticism. It's unreasonable and it's senseless. Same as these people. No matter how we do it, when we try to fill in the gap between God and us, we end up looking foolish. Better to understand that the mystery between what God knows and what you know is actually just a part of a definition of who God is. Like the psalm today, I have quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. What does a weaned child in its mother's arms know? Does she know as much as the mother knows? Far from it. But I tell you what, she knows at least one thing that causes her soul to rest. This is my mother, and I'm with her. She knows that. She might not know anything else. She knows that and it's enough. And y'all, as the hymn says, we should not try to judge God by feeble sense. By our, well, translation, by our puny brains. We cannot judge God by our puny brains. Instead, we have to learn the skill of faith, which is to rest ourselves in his arms even when we don't know what he knows. The struggle with patient faith comes when we just don't want to do that, when we just want the explanations now, even when the explanations are not forthcoming. And so let's look today, lastly, at the last thing, which is the possibility of patient faith. Because here we not only have people who are failing to be patient, but we have two people right in the middle of the story who are showing us what it's like to just keep believing. You've got Jairus, and you have an unnamed woman. Notice how um, Jairus speaks in verse 23 again. Come and lay your hands on my daughter so that she may be made well. Literally, so that she may be saved and live. This man was facing a very, very difficult thing. A 12-year-old daughter taking her last breath. I can't imagine. And yet, he persevered in that to, make, to take the time away from the deathbed to get to Jesus. So that he could say this. Now, look at what the woman says. Now, now she doesn't say it out loud. She says it to herself, verse 28. She's just saying this in her heart. If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. I'll be saved. I mean, wow. And this is someone who's been praying for 12 years. She's been praying for 12 years for this healing and it has not come. And yet she still thinks in her heart, if I can just touch his clothes, I'll be saved. What faith? Now, how is that possible? How is it possible for them to have the faith? Jesus shows us at the very end of the story by doing two things. First of all, it's something we've already mentioned. He puts the skepticism out of the room. He puts the skepticism out of the room, and he leaves only the parents, Jairus and his wife, and Peter, James, and John. He leaves only those people whom he knows are open to trusting him and what he can do. Let me put it this way. Um, This is something that you you might not have expected to hear in church, but it's true. There is no power in faith by itself. Faith by itself has no power zero let me prove it to you you can believe that the rays are going to win the world series but if they don't your belief has been in vain the object of your faith is what gives faith its power now if you believe the rays are going to win the world series and they do boom you got it you you had faith in the right thing do you see it's not faith itself that saves you it's what your faith is fixed on In this way, faith is like a mirror. It only reflects what's looking at it and what it's looking at, right? Um, If a mirror is pointed to myself, if if my faith is pointed to me, if my confidence is in my ability to be a good Christian and do the things I need to do through all the hard things of life, it's only going to reflect back to me, me. And it's not going to be very strong. It's not going to be like Jairus and this woman if my faith is directed to some created thing my circumstances it's only going to reflect my circumstances back to me but if I learn to take the mirror of faith and point it full on to Jesus Christ that's when faith has power do you see it? he puts people out of the room who are unwilling to do that and then he personally takes the girl by the hand and says to her personally two words which mean in English I say to you rise I say it to you I'm taking you by the hand. I'm saying it to you. I'm giving you the life. Don't put your faith in your faith. Put your faith in me. It's my voice that called the universe into being that can give you life right now. And I'm going to do that. I'm going to bestow it on you. Wow. Same thing with us. Like the girl we are dead in our sins. Like the woman, we are unclean by the disease of our soul that will not go away no matter how many physicians and no matter how many techniques we come in to try to solve it. And yet Jesus Christ offers to us complete healing if we will turn our faith only to him. (laughs) Jesus is able to convert you. He's able to give you faith Jesus is able to strengthen your faith over time, to sanctify you, to make you more like him. Jesus is able to deliver you into his presence with exceeding joy at the end. He's he's the only one able to do any of that. And so, y'all, the call this morning, especially as we come to the communion table, is look at Jesus. Look at what he did. He died on the cross and rose from the dead. Therefore, life can come into dead people. He received the Holy Spirit at his baptism so that he could then, in turn, give his Holy Spirit to all Who asked him? He can do it. We can't. Look to Jesus. The Bible says about Abraham, the great father of the faith, in Romans 4, that he did not waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in his faith because he gave glory to God. That's what we're talking about. He turned the mirror of his faith away from himself, away from Sarah, to God. And as he did that, he patiently persevered through not just 12 years, like these people, he persevered through decades of waiting for what God had promised him. What are you prone to looking at besides Jesus? Let's come this morning to the communion table just desperate. If we could just but touch the hem of his robes. If he would just lay his hands and say the word, let us come with that attitude. Amen.